if we have created even a slightly safer, more stable environment for a child, that is successful. If we have another baby born during our program, but with no substances in their system, that's huge. That's the life of a child. Coming into the world free of drugs, that is a success. Welcome back to another episode of The Podtask. That was the Honorable Aurora Martinez-Jones of the 126th District Court of Travis County, defining success in her family drug treatment court program. She joins us today as we discuss how families that recover together, stay together, and the importance of the family drug treatment court programs within our justice system. If you've been wondering about family drug treatment court programs lately, then listen up for the next hour, because this episode is filled with information. As always, you can join our conversations by sending me information to thepodtask at gmail.com. And be sure to stay tuned until the end of each episode, as I usually wrap up with news about what to expect next and some food for thought until we meet again. Now let's get on with the show. Judge Martinez-Jones, thank you for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. Can you give the audience just a 30-second brief introduction um, to yourself, just your name, your current role, and maybe a website that the audience can go to to learn more about you and the work that you do? Sure. Um, My name is Aurora Martinez-Jones. I am currently the 126th State District Court Judge, and I sit in Travis County. I'm a civil and family court judge, and I'm also designated as a juvenile court. And in Travis County, with our central docketing system, we do have a local agreement for me to be the presiding CPS district court judge. So I oversee the administration and management of all of the CPS cases that are filed in Travis County. And so I really look over the cases that involve children. That's kind of my expertise. I am board certified in child welfare law, and I have been on the bench first um, before a district judge as an associate judge since 2015, working on those CPS dockets. Uh, We do have a website, traviscountycps.com. It has a little bit more information about me and our child welfare courts at that website. Let's go further into your past experiences. Can you share a little bit more about your journey before you became a judge and your motivations or interests for this area of the law? Yeah, so, you know, I grew up in LaPorte, Texas, a suburb of Houston, and my family are a family of immigrants. So I knew I wanted to help people. I wanted to become a lawyer in doing that. So I had that in my brain since I was like five years old. And so I started my journey of trying to figure out how would I become a lawyer, not really knowing what that meant or having anybody in my family that was a lawyer that I could rely on to tell me. But I just navigated my way, finished school, and came to the University of Texas at Austin for undergraduate where I really started to hone in on saying, well, after this, I need to go to law school. I know that and then figure out how I'm going to serve people and help. Um, So while I was in undergraduate school, I started a pre-law organization, Minority Women Pursuing Law, which is still going strong to this day at UT. And with that, I was able to connect with other lawyers and judges in the community that helped give me a little bit of guidance. So um, I was able to complete my undergraduate degree in three years and went on to law school. I got accepted at the University of Texas School of Law. And that's where it really hit hard trying to figure out it's so real. It's so within my uh, grasp to become a lawyer. Now I've got to really make some decisions on what I'm going to do. 
I did um, two clinics, the Children's Rights Clinic and the Juvenile Defense Clinic um, at the University of Texas School of Law. And that's where I really fell in love with um, advocating for kids and working for underserved and marginalized communities. So knowing I wasn't going to go to a big law firm, I had to figure out how I was, how I was going to do that work um, and make money. And so I started thinking about opening my own practice. And so while I was in law school, I wrote a business plan that helped guide me on hanging out my shingle as a young lawyer and how I would be able to serve the community that I wanted to serve while also running a business as a lawyer. So I um, passed the bar exam after I graduated from law school and was able to start my business immediately. It was the Martinez Jones Law Firm, PLLC, and I started getting on the court appointment list. I was representing children and parents in child welfare cases with Child Protective Services, and I also got on the appointment list for our um, juvenile defense attorneys um, working with our local ju uh, juvenile justice system in Travis County. And doing that work was wonderful. That was my passion. I also had a general practice um, because I did have to pay my bills. Uh, and so <laughs> I did personal injury, some real estate transactions, a little bit of probate and, you know, kind of anything that seemed of interest to me or was a client who I felt that could really use my help. And in my time advocating, especially for children, um, I was uh, open to an opportunity to become an associate judge, which is appointed by the district judges. And in Travis County, it's an application process. And I did that. And in 2014, our Travis County Commissioner's Court designated a new associate judge position that would be dedicated just to the CPS cases. And that is the position that I got um, appointed to. I was the very first judge in Travis County that got to focus only on child welfare cases as an associate judge. And I served in that role for five years and it was wonderful. It helped me look at things from a different light, but I took with me all the experiences that I had as an attorney. Uh, one of the most amazing experiences, it was hard work, but it was very enlightening and provides me with a lot of perspective, even to this day on the bench, is representing parents in our specialty family drug treatment court program. Um, we opened our family drug treatment court under the previous 126 district court judge. That was Darlene Byrne, who's now uh, the chief justice of the third court of appeals. But she started that program in 2008. And I um, was asked to serve uh, to represent parents in that family drug treatment court program. And so since 2008, I had been working with this really amazing specialty court serving the parents who were working through recovery. And all of those experiences, I believe, have made me a better judge on the bench, especially presiding over that specialty court docket. Wow. So I have to tell you, um, I kind of wish that our show was more than just about specialty courts because I kind of want to dive into so much of what you just said, especially yeah. doing a business plan in law school. Um, but I won't do that because our poor audience is probably like, please, no, we want to hear more about the specialty Well, court. I was not the most popular law student, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I did carry around a business plan and was known for that. I just, I love that because I know how many students actually don't have that prepared before they go into private practice, leaving law school. So the fact that you um, actually went through all of those steps before even leaving is like, I almost feel like you could bottle that up and teach that to, to <laughs> students now. So I just, I love that. Um, not to mention all the other things that you were talking about, but 
I'm going to dive into a little bit more then about the role that you're in now as the current 126th District Court Judge. You said that you focus on CPS cases, correct, in this yes. court? Yes. Okay. And when did you get on the bench? You probably mentioned this, but I just want to be clear about how long have you been in this specific role since you were previously the associate judge? Right. As the associate judge, I was assigned the family drug treatment court and about half of the child welfare dockets. I was elected to the district court bench when the previous judge retired from that seat to go to the higher court. And I was elected in 2020. So January 1 of 2021 was my first day on the job as a district court judge. And I will say I didn't realize how different it would be going from associate judge to district judge, but there's a lot more responsibility and um, a lot more work when you're thinking about supporting dockets in that really big role of being a public servant, um, having constituents who are the entire community and especially children and thinking about your level of responsibility to them and accountability in the system to make sure that justice is served in each and every single child welfare case that we have in Travis County. It was huge. And I really took that role on um, seriously. And with all of my effort working on transitioning some improvements that I had identified to try and make things work better. But of course, this was all during the middle of a pandemic, which <laughs> added another layer of complexity to becoming a new district judge over an entire system of cases, um, all while we have this pandemic happening outside our doors. Well, it sounds like you walked into a bit of a challenge, even though it you know, it's an established position, so to speak. It sounds like there were a lot of um, challenges that existed during that time yeah. and you came in and from what I know, kind of kicked butt, so to speak, um, <laughs> once you got into, onto the bench. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about, since the program, the specialty court program existed, you know, before your time from the previous judge, as you mentioned earlier, was there something with the court that that you also had to you know expand on or improve when you came in to kind of make it your own yes especially coming in as a new district court judge during a pandemic with this really important specialty court program i wanted to make sure that we didn't really skip a beat because i know any deficiency in the way that we transitioned during the pandemic was going to impact the families. It was going to impact those parents who were really working hard on their recovery so that they could keep their children with them and they could preserve their family. So one of the most difficult things was deciding what do we do with our program? What do we do with all of the child welfare cases that I was responsible for when we were not allowed to be in person for very many good reasons, um, but difficult uh, to transition everything to virtual? So immediately we took a look at what we were able to do and what we weren't able to do. But ultimately, we switched all of our child welfare dockets, including our family drug treatment court program, to a virtual setting. And so it took us maybe a week, a week and a half with the Family Drug Treatment Court program to figure out what does that mean? How do you support children and families virtually? And how can you make sure there's fidelity in something that we've never done before? And that was the biggest challenge. You know, a lot of it was we were starting from scratch and figuring out 
what does a virtual specialty court program even look like? And then really not having anything previously to rely on to say, okay, well, here are the best practices for a virtual program. Here are the best practices for running a virtual court docket. Now, today we have some of those things and we've come a long way, but it really was um, trial and error and it was being innovative and really thinking beyond what our norms were because we were in an absolutely abnormal time. Um, I will say that in Travis County, in our child welfare courts, we're a model court under the National Council for Juvenile and Family Court Judges, which just means we've agreed for many, many years to be guinea pigs. So we weren't um, shy of innovation or trying something new. It was just a matter of making sure whatever we decided to put in place was going to be helpful and not harmful. So we really took some of the best practices for things like our specialty court. And we said, okay, if we look at the guidance, what can we pull out of there and still do that does not necessarily have to be um, in person? What is the concept behind this best practice and how can we translate that to a virtual setting? And so that's what I spent a lot of my time doing um, initially when I became a district court judge was really trying to figure out how to be a virtual district court judge who is responsible for all these important cases and how do I support the community in the midst of a pandemic? Now that we're talking about this, um, this specialty court program, which is your family drug treatment court, yes. can you give a quick overview of like what the what's like the length of the time of the program, the ideal candidates that are in the program? Can you share a little bit more about that, even the type of treatments uh, sure. and programs that are available? Yes, I'm happy to share about our program. We actually work um, with Children and Family Futures and a lot of our national partners. And so we are a peer learning court. So we are available to help work with other courts as we've been around for a little while and gone through quite a few transitions. The way our program is now is it's a preservation program. So we utilize the court-ordered services statutes to keep children with their parents while their parents are in treatment. Right now, our provider options only allow for mothers to be able to take their children. I hope someday we have a provider that would allow a dad to take a kiddo because that would be wonderful. But we have our moms who take their children with them into treatment. And the way our program is set up is that we take the moms who need inpatient treatment. And so we work with the um, very few, but the, we're fortunate to have um, providers that do a family house type of treatment option with uh, women and children. We used to have our own Austin recovery here in Austin that had a family house. And we had them at the beginning of the pandemic, but they have since had to shut their doors. And so now we work primarily with Santa Maria in Houston and Nexus in Dallas. And so we support our parents, our moms going with their kiddos to treatment. It's 90 days in those family house programs. And we're using a court ordered services case. Once they are done with those 90 days, we work with the provider to transition them back into our community. And we support them in 90 days of sober living. And towards the end of those 90 days of sober living, we transition them into their own housing where they are also responsible for maintaining that housing. All along the way, we're having our check-ins with the treatment court and the um, partners. We have our hearings and staffings on Thursdays every single week. We have four phases that the parents work through, and we are actively engaging and supporting not only their recovery, but their parenting as well. Our program is called Parenting and Recovery for that reason, because we really support both of those components. 
that means we also have to have supports and services for the kids. So especially doing this in the context of a child welfare case, we are able to bring in things like child and family therapists and making sure that we have um, peer recovery coaches and other people who are supporting the parents who also have that experience of being parents and being in recovery. So we have um, gone through many different iterations of what our program looks like, but this is where we're at now. And for other programs who may be listening about how we got here, we did start with temporary managing conservatorship cases where parents and their children were separated while parents went to treatment, but we learned quickly um, that it was difficult to reintegrate parents out of treatment and in the parenting role all in the same time while maintaining their recovery. It was a lot. So we really wanted to look at a model that doesn't disrupt the parenting role. And that's where we got to where we were today. It took a lot of collaboration. We have a lot of wonderful team members, including um, our local domestic violence survivor advocacy organization. We have housing partners and our treatment partners are also a part of our team. We have case managers and we also have newly implemented a wraparound care coordination model to add additional support in how we work with parents at the table in setting up their service plans. Can I ask you a little bit about what your treatment team looks like? Because I feel I get the impression that a family drug court treatment team might look specifically different than, um, let's say, an adult court, like an adult drug court program. Right. You know, we have a lot of um, team members on our program and we really tap into the team members that we need at different times for some of our um, additional team members. But a lot of the team includes the primary people who are involved in the child welfare case. That includes um, the judge, of course, our assistant district attorneys who are the prosecutors. They represent uh, child protective services. They're a part of our team. The child protective services worker and their supervisors are part of the team as well. So is the attorney for the parent, the attorney for the child, the guardian ad litem, which is represented by our CASA program. So CASA of Travis County is on our team as well. And then we have uh, case managers who work specifically with our parents who are in the program. And we have those case managers as part of the team. We have a drug court coordinator, a, a drug court services manager, and we also have peer recovery coaches, our um, domestic violence survivor advocacy representatives. They're a part of our team to help us whenever we need to reach out for the domestic violence components. We have a child and family therapists um, who are also part of the team and peer recovery coaches who are a part of the team. One of the things that we um, often are trying to make sure we remember, and that's important for all those who work in the program, is that the parent themselves are a team member for their case. And so it gets overwhelming when we have all of these professionals, all the ones that I just mentioned, and that's where our hearings are really important, giving the opportunity for that parent to speak up and have their voice elevated, um, especially in this context of having all of these professionals weighing in on how things should be moving forward and what work needs to be um, focused on for each individual parent in order to see progress in their case for them and their children. Is it difficult to get all those people together in a room together at the same time? 
well, we have a really big room. And so that was one of the transitions. You know, we all went to Zoom for our staffings, which is, you know, not too bad when you're talking about professionals, but really having a parent involved in a situation so that they feel like they're a part of it. It was a little harder on Zoom and we had our hearings on Zoom as well. Um, but we did our best to try and transition um, that when it was occurring. But now we are um, in person and we have a nice big multi-purpose room. So our team gets together on Thursday mornings at 9 a.m. and they start staffing. So we get them all around the table. We usually have more than one person serving in the role. Um, and that is to make sure that we always have a representative for that role um, able to be there. So if the primary um, partner who works in a specific case isn't able that day to be there at the staffing, they have their backup or they have um, somebody who's subbing in for that moment to share their perspective and make sure that their concerns are addressed or the um, achievements and um, things they want to celebrate for that family are heard as well. So we have a lot of people, but that makes sure that we are covering every perspective because we really want to make sure we aren't um, leaving something, uh, a need unmet without trying to address it so that the family is in the best possible situation to be successful and hopefully never have another child welfare case um, as they raise their children on their own in their recovery. Nice. So you mentioned earlier about um, that there are some inpatient programs that allow the mom to come with their child, right? But not, unfortunately, not right now for the dad to bring children to the program, um, an inpatient program. Right. What other type of unique needs have you identified in this population? Yeah, we do have some different needs for our um, families, uh, and we do have some gaps in the community. One of the things we're always keeping an eye on is sober living. Um, for quite some time, we um, did not have sober living options for dads and their children. And I think we were able to get at least one in Austin um, because having a sober living environment is very important. Make sure we have equal opportunities for dads to have their children placed with them as we do for moms. Although um, historically we've had more moms involved in our program, but that's one is sober living. Also, the kind of recovery supports in the community is a constant that we keep an eye on, making sure that there's the right kind of support groups, making sure that there's the right kind of meetings that they can go to. Um, serving our monolingual Spanish-speaking population is always a challenge, making sure that we have the providers that can give them services, including inpatient treatment, um, work with them in their sober living home and peer recovery coaching, things like that in their native language. And so making sure we have providers that can um, speak primarily Spanish and work with those um, parents is really important. We keep an eye on that. And then really just making sure that we think about the needs of the kids. Uh, one of the transitions that our program also went through is initially we did start off and we had a, a grant where we primarily had parents who had children under the age of five. So we had a lot of babies. But as we've transitioned and we've looked at all the different populations that need to be supported in recovery and in parenting, we realize there's a lot of parents who have older children and they still need the kind of support that our program could provide. So we do end up with parents who have older children. And when you start talking about school-aged kids or teenagers, there's a whole other component of the kind of support that we need to provide to those kids when they are also working with a parent who's in recovery. There may be past traumas that need to be healed. Um, there may need to be some restoration between trust um, in those parents and those kids. 
and really making sure that we support that parent-child relationship and providing those young people some education about what is going on with their parent, about the mental health needs that their parent is trying to address, because we definitely highlight the voice of children in our courts, and we want them to understand that in a case about them, it really does matter what they think should happen in their world. And so providing those opportunities and making sure that they are adequately and appropriately supported is one of those other things that we constantly are keeping an eye on to make sure that we have those options in the community with providers um, who are adept at working with children of parents who are in recovery. What kind of incentives and sanctions do you use in this type of treatment court program? So we are now with our associate judge who sits on the docket often. Um, My associate judge, Lee Matthews Rodriguez, has some wonderful little uh, trinkets and coins um, that show that we have uh, seen parents engaging in behavior that we want to support. So she is amazing on that. We have had um, some really innovative ideas for incentives. One of our previous case managers had started the best dressed. um, And basically, she would take a look at the docket and looking at our moms, she would decide who was the best dress for the day. And they would get a little tiara to wear during the court hearing, get to take a picture with the judge afterwards, and they were deemed the best dress. We have some incentives for those who have a good court report that they have the court report of the day. Um, And so it's more really um, work being put in, making sure we have way more incentives than sanctions. Um, But, you know, we have to put the two together and uh, we do our best to follow the best practices. Some of the sanctions that we have used that I think have been um, helpful in correcting the concern and providing opportunity for growth of the parent are, for example, when we have had parents who miss a drug test, then we have a sanction, which is doing daily drug testing. And they do that for a week if they have a missed drug test, and that corrects that behavior pretty quickly. So we continue to think about what it is we're able to do and how we can um, support parents. And especially if we can think a little bit um, more creatively about not a sanction just for a punishment, but a sanction that's going to support a correction in the concern that was brought up that required the sanction. I really um, like to do something meaningful. If we had a parent, for example, who submitted a test that was dilute, I would like for that parent to do research on why is it that their test could be dilute. Not if they didn't know specifically what caused it to be dilute, but to do some research. What does a dilute drug test mean? And how does that happen sometimes? And what can you do to prevent that? And what we've had have been some amazing, um, really projects that have been helpful to the whole program. Um, I remember one parent did a whole brochure that gave information about dilute drug tests, what causes them and how to avoid them and when to be concerned that you might have a medical issue if you continue to have too many dilute drug tests. And I just thought that was amazing to come from the parent and not always coming from the court. So anytime we can think of something that, you know, although it's a sanction, it can be an opportunity to grow past the concern, then I think that kind of mindset can lead to a really successful program. I love hearing that, honestly. I I think that it's a great thing to focus on what is is the entire point of the sanction or the incentive, right? It's 
what are you trying to accomplish with that? And if you constantly keep that in mind, you do kind of have to get creative in this day and age, but you're really addressing the root issue, right? And I think that that's so important in every sanction that's done. One type of sanction doesn't fit right for every behavior. Exactly. And that gives you an opportunity to do what we know is good for child welfare cases in general is to be uh, narrowly tailored and specific and individualized. And that's what we should be doing in our drug treatment um, programs, though we have a general guidance of how the program works. That's our opportunity to be individualized. Yeah. And I really, I really enjoy hearing that you're engaging the parents in learning um, what, what these things mean. So it's not, it's not a sanction that's happening to them. It's something that they get to be engaged with to understand why there was even a sanction in their case, right? Like, you know, just really understanding the depth of it and the purpose of it, um, and understanding specifically what their conduct was, right? right? Just like to really understand that and look at that more objectively rather than totally focus on necessarily like their own viewpoint of the situation, right? Um, for instance, I've seen, you know, parents might say, or any any respondent might say is that, well, I, I didn't, I didn't fail the test though, right? Like I didn't fail the right. test and I didn't, I didn't do any drugs. So I don't know why it's diluted. I don't know why it looks like that. So instead of engaging in this back and forth of, no, you did something wrong, um, to get them to really think about why you and everybody else in the program is concerned about this, this, you know, this test result, you've kind of engaged them in that process so that they also know and figure that out on their own, not just you telling them why they should be right. concerned. Exactly. You know? so I, I love that. I just, I love that. I'm probably saying that way more complicated than it needs to be, but I just, this is probably the part of our conversation that's going to stick with me. So I do want to go back. You mentioned something about a peer training court. I'd love to expand a little bit more about what does that mean to be a peer training court? Sure. A peer learning court. So basically what we have agreed to is that if there are any family treatment courts who are in need of some uh, guidance, if they want to come observe our court, or if they want someone from our team to visit with them, that we are open, willing, and able to serve in that way. Uh, We did have to apply and get selected to be a peer learning court, and we've been able to do that for the last few years. And it has been a wonderful opportunity to engage with family treatment courts, not even just across the state of Texas, but across the country. So we have had the opportunity to have judges connect. We've had the opportunity to have our drug court coordinators connect um, and have visitors come observe how our dockets work. And I've even gone and observed some courts um, in their home state and seen how they work. I did a, a bit of work with Oklahoma and observing the Oklahoma City Family Treatment Court. And I shared with them the um, tiara, a best dressed incentive, and they adopted that. And I was able to visit with them again. And they said it has just been amazing because their parents come to court ready. It is like a fashion show. And they really love that sanction, I mean, that incentive. And so just sharing ideas um, and even learning what other courts do, seeing where things that we do and other courts do 
continue to show improved outcomes um, gives you confidence that what you're doing in your court is really the right thing and that you're seeing it um, be translated to other jurisdictions because that sometimes is people's concern whether you know if something that I'm doing in Travis County is going to work for someplace else in Texas or across the country but when we share ideas and we give things a try um, we're able to see that some of those do translate even if there needs to be the, their own spin on it but as a peer learning court we have the opportunity to make ourselves available and to share what we do we're very good about documenting um, a lot of our program, collecting data so that we can share our outcomes as well. That's all part of um, having been selected to be a peer learning court and then being very open to sharing those things. A lot of our information for our family drug treatment court, our parenting in recovery program is online. We have parentinginrecovery.com and it has a lot of information about our court there. Having gone around and seen other programs and not just in Texas, but uh, nationally, is there any anything that you observe that stuck with you that you, you know, thought about how can I how can I take this back to my program and make it ours? You know, one of the things that I realized it was really neat, um, particularly when I went to Oklahoma, they were doing a lot of good work uh, implementing best practices for family treatment courts. And as I was looking at the different partners and thinking about who our partners were in Travis County, uh, a lot of the uh, personality traits, I think, translate to certain roles on a family treatment court team. And it was kind of funny to see uh, so many similarities and in a completely different jurisdiction. But it was the role that really provided those um, similarities that I was able to see. And it really helped me understand the extreme importance of the collaboration aspect of any kind of specialty court and for us on family treatment courts especially because we're looking not only at um, trying to support um, a person in success for whatever kind of legal case they have we in family treatment courts really have to also prioritize the safety and well-being of children. So that adds a different layer on that's a little different than um, adult treatment courts. But I do know and I have talked to some programs for adult treatment courts that are more tied to our criminal courts about how they can be more holistic and maybe take a few things from our family treatment courts to be more holistic because even though they may have parents in a DWI court or some other court that's only dealing with one parent in the context of their criminal case, that person may be a mom or a dad or may have you know nieces and nephews that are in their care. They may be a major player in their family system. And if we aren't really thinking about that person in the context of their entirety of who they are and thinking what other supports could we really provide if our goal is for this person to be a healthy, happy, sober person who makes good decisions, what else should we be doing to support getting them there? And a lot of times those family supports and the engagements and having people in their life who are safe, appropriate, healthy, and sober as well is something that we have to assure if we want to see them successful and out of our programs without the recidivism of coming back. And so I think that as I've looked at programs whether they be other family treatment programs in different jurisdictions in Texas or in other states, 
Um, I've looked at other programs that are not family treatment courts and definitely think we have so much to learn from each other about the bigger picture of supporting parents in this really awesome opportunity we have in specialty courts. Wow, I, I really like that answer. <laughs> you've mentioned several times best practices and you've, you've given specific examples, but I want to ask you now if there's any um, best practices that you can think of offhand specific to family drug treatment court programs that you think are vital to have if you're going to, you know, either start a program like this or you already have one and you want to make sure that, you know, you're doing the best that you can with your program. What are some of the best practices that come to mind for you that you think these are the things you, you need to know and you need to be implementing to be able to have a successful program? Right. You know, I um, always lean on the best practice standards that we have from All Rise, formerly National Association of Drug Court Professionals. And looking through those best practices, we really start there and looking at making sure we're adhering to all of them in some context. I will say one of the really big important um, best practices is to be continually looking at the um, diversity of your program and making sure that you have equitable practices and policies so that every type of person who's coming into your program has the same opportunity for success in your program. And unfortunately, a lot of our systems that are tied to child welfare, or juvenile justice, or criminal justice system already start off with some disproportionality on who is represented in those systems. So I think it is important for all of us who work in our specialty courts to look at those best practices and making sure you're addressing equity. Because we work in these court systems, these different systems, it's important that we assure that there's access to justice for everyone. And if there is one type of person or one kind of community that isn't able to access that justice in the same way, but we have the ability to change practices, to change policies, to change the way our program is available, received, and engaged by those underserved or marginalized communities, then it is our responsibility. It is a best practice that we are doing what we need to do to change that and making sure that those people as well have access to justice. So for me, that's a big one is making sure that all of our practices and policies are equitable and we continually look at the impact of the people who are served in our program and where we're falling short for those who should be served better. Thanks. That's a a great one. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I also know that you do a specialty docket and a lot of times people are sometimes confused about the differences between specialty dockets versus specialty court but also uh, some people understand that there's a difference but really struggle to go um, from their program of being a specialty docket into a specialty court i would really love if you could share some information about your specialty docket that you do and how that's distinguished from a specialty court program. Sure. So uh, one of the specialty dockets that I have is for dual status youth. 
And so in my capacity as a juvenile court, I also have the opportunity to serve those kids who are in foster care, they're in the child welfare system, and they're also juvenile justice involved. And so um, the difference really is we have a lot of support for specialty courts. There are um, some specific designations and definitions statutorily. And we also have our um, federal organizations and national organizations who support um, best practice standards for uh, the designated specialty courts. They come with some statutory protections, especially about how judges are engaged in those um, specialty courts. But the specialty dockets, I think, just have not evolved to that point yet. Yet. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done about how do you best serve a dual status youth, for example, um, because you have this intersection of two systems, two complex systems at that. There are a lot of unique challenges that come up, and I do think it would be beneficial for us to move in that direction where we do get to a point where we are able to say, you know, dual status youth can be a specialty court, but in that, you know, we have to work through what is it that would be best um, practices and standards for all dual status youth. The complexity in that is that they're so unique. Every jurisdiction is different when it comes to their juvenile justice system. And that's done um, on a county by county basis in Texas. And then our child welfare system is a statewide system. So that makes it really hard when one of your systems is a statewide system and one of your system is local. And then they're colliding um, and there's a child at the intersection. Um, so it can be very hard for me to translate that even more so from Travis County to one of my you know, sister courts who may be in a more rural county or even in a more urban county. Um, I think that some focus has come on that population in particular, and I'm very excited about that, and I'm happy to be here for the evolution of it. But I think the major difference is the way in which those um, courts and those dockets are supported and the guidance that's already out there and available. Um, but hopefully with time and with other people doing innovative, good work, we can take what we learn from some of our specialty courts and just like we talked about translating some of those things um, whenever we went from, you know, in person to virtual, I think that there's room to look at best practices for similar courts. I can look at family treatment courts. I can look at juvenile drug courts and I can see what aspects are common, what could be translated and, and start seeing what might be the framework for best practices and standards and guidance for doing dual status dockets, eventually, hopefully in a place where we could call it a specialty court. But those are kind of the major differences that I see in, you know, a a true specialty court versus a dogget that's doing something innovative and really trying to get us to that place. It seems like there's definitely some overlap a lot of times between both a docket and a specialty court program and even maybe overlap in, you know, who the people are in the program as well right. as like the treatment teams and, and which organizations or agencies are a part of making those decisions or giving feedback as far as what's the best route for a certain situation. You know, and I feel like with both your specialty court program and your um, and your specialty docket, you have to engage with the community, right? Um, right. It, it almost seems necessary, right? You have to utilize community resources. You have to probably educate the community on some level 
Can you share about other types of resources you have found helpful for your program? Yeah, so there's um, three big entities that I would say have been tremendously helpful. Obviously, the Texas Association for Specialty Courts has been very helpful in my family treatment court and really connecting with other courts. The Children's Commission, it's the Supreme Court of Texas Children's Commission. They are also incredibly helpful, especially when I'm looking at my child welfare cases and the way that we're working with families on that end, um, as well as the dual status work. They have started a bit to venture into dual status work to consider what is it we should really be looking at. And for those who may be interested in others who have family treatment courts or child welfare um, cases in general, the Children's Commission's website is texaschildrenscommission.gov. They have bench books, they have resources and bench cards for judges, which honestly, when I became a judge, I said, I wish I would have known about these bench cards as an attorney. They're basically cheat sheets about the law and best practices that we should be utilizing in cases um, and all just kind of in like a, a double-sided one-page document. And so those kinds of resources are super valuable, especially when you start wanting to make sure if you're in more of a um, specialized docket and not a full-blown specialty court, what are all the things to consider to make sure that you're staying on a path where you're being helpful for a family or for a child um, when you don't have all of the vetted uh, guidance and best practices and standards guides that are out there. So they have a lot of those really good resources. The other um, resource that I lean on a lot is the National Council for Juvenile and Family Court Judges. I am on that board and they sit in both of those worlds and they look at a national level. Their website is ncjfcj.org and they are extraordinarily helpful, not only with providing a lot of those really important and helpful tips in the juvenile justice realm, as well as the child welfare realm. They do talk about specialty courts as well, the um, juvenile drug court programs, the um, family drug treatment court programs, and kind of from a national viewpoint, which is really helpful to see what other people are doing and to be connected with programs in different locations. And they also have really interesting bench cards. They watch federal legislation. I know a lot of our programs may benefit from federal grants that help us. And so they are very connected to what the landscape is looking like, especially for specialty courts on the national level and can provide those additional tips and supports, bench cards and resources. So that's another really, really important one. But our annual conference that we have for the Texas Association of Specialty Courts is a great resource. That is one of the places where I love to do more hands-on networking and understanding about what other Texas courts are doing. And I'm very excited that my team will be there. We'll be presenting um, this year at that conference. I hope anybody who's thinking about either starting a court like this treatment court program, or if they already have one that they're planning to attend and get more information, because I gotta, I gotta be frank. If I had a program like this, I would be lining up to speak with you after, <laughs> after your presentation and be like, okay, I've got a list of questions for you because you have so much information at your fingertips. You have so much knowledge about this. And I can just tell that you've spent a lot of time really understanding your program and making sure that you are implementing all the best practices that you can and how best to serve the people that you're serving. And I think that that's really important. And 
why reinvent the wheel when somebody else already has that information? So I just, I feel certain that um, anybody who's doing this work right now could gain information from you. So if you get a line following your presentation, you know who to blame. Um, <laughs> I apologize in advance. <laughs> so, Happy to talk with everyone. Yes. <laughs> so I have to ask you, one of the things that comes up a lot is just about funding and data, right? And I bring this up a lot with, with people I interview, and it's because this funding and data are, are both um, hard topics for a lot of people, right? For various reasons. But data is, is hard to wrap your head around if you're not a numbers person, right? And, and understanding how, that, how to gather it and quality of that data, as well as like how to utilize it. Right. And then funding is a whole other <laughs> animal, but they're, they're kind of intertwined. Um, so I always like to just ask, can you share a little bit about how your program's funded and how you gather data? Can you just share a little bit about that for people who are maybe really, really hoping that you can shed some light in this darkness? <laughs> yeah. So I will be completely honest. We are very lucky in Travis County because we have a wonderful relationship our courts do with our local health and human services. We have a division of um, children and family services. So our Travis County Health and Human Services is one of our biggest partners in our family drug treatment court. And what that has been able to help us do is really focus on those two things, funding and data, because that is what they have done so well for us in our program. We started off initially with a federal grant, and that was part of the requirements having children under the age of five go with their parents um, or be involved in our program. And so we had to work within very specific parameters for that initial grant, but it was a good grant and it really helped us out. We also had uh, the governor's grant, like a lot of us started off with, and that helped support our uh, drug court coordinator initially. And so we had the drug court coordinator, we had um, our health and human services that were helping us manage our big grant, um, our federal grant. And one of the things about a federal grant, for those who have one, you know, there are a lot of data requirements. Even our governor's grant has data requirements. So we just started from the very beginning saying, let's capture more data than less so that we always have it and we need to do everything we need to do to be compliant with the grant. And that honestly set us up to be in a really wonderful position to have been capturing extensive data from the very beginning of our program. When we got past some of those grants and we no longer were required to keep that data, it only made sense that we did. So there were some aspects that didn't make sense, like we had to keep tracking um, a recidivism on a criminal case, but we were a civil court. So that was a little confusing and we kind of adjusted how we looked at that, but we capture to the best of our ability, the recidivism of our parents who have new child welfare cases. We have to the best of our ability, um, exit interviews that occur and follow-up interviews after case closure. But we have been able to look at what do we need to support the data and make sure that we line up our funding for that, because what I believe has been um, a significant part of us continuing to get funding is because we have the data to support why we should get it. And so then it becomes a little bit of a chicken and an egg thing where you're like, well, if I need the data to do the funding, but I need the funding to be able to support a person to help us keep the data, then how are we going to make this happen? 
And you got to figure out a way. I think in each community, it's a little bit different about how you can go about doing that. Um, but it definitely, I think, was implementing that and putting it in place has been helpful in making sure that we sustain our funding because that data is what's going to convince people to continue investing in your program. So the data is extraordinarily important. You also have to understand how to convince people who are also not numbers people, but they need the data and they need to be convinced that your program is one that continues. I will say I remember um, going to our commissioner's court and we knew we had the data lined up and our commissioners who are in charge of all of the funding for our county, we were going to ask them to sustain parts of our program that were going to be coming off of grants. I remember what we did to humanize and really bring home the importance of our program supported by the data, but was also having one of our graduates come and they were part of our presentation. And they expressed how the program impacted them. But we also had to speak their language, which included this participant, former participant, graduate of the program saying, and today I am in the community. I have my own home. I pay taxes and I feel really good that I am a productive member of this community. That was extraordinarily impactful. And then when they could look through our paperwork, they could look through our reports and see that our data backs exactly what this powerful person just told them and is exactly what they're supposed to be responsible for is having productive people in our community. It was really, I think, hard for them to say that our program is not one they should continue to invest in. So there's a little bit of, you know, maybe political savviness that you have to have in understanding your audience and where you're getting your funding from. But I would say the funding and the data as rolled into them as they are, you've got to figure out how to get it started and then it'll sustain itself. If you keep the data up, you'll be able to use that to prove that you can, you should have the funding to continue investing in your program. Thank you. That's, that's really good information to have. And you kind of touched on what I was going to ask you next, which is just, what does success look like in your program? You know, how do you know when your participants are successful? And, you know, is that just they completed the program and that's it? Or what does that actually look like? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, it's one that I think um, I thought about a lot when I was on the bench presiding on the cases and the team thinks about and we really consider because there is the one, right, where we say the parent has checked all the boxes. They have worked their way through the program. Um, but then we would have team members who say, but I'm still concerned, Judge. What are we doing? And so I think we have the actual definition of successful completion of our program is actually completing the program. And your program should be clear enough and transparent enough. They know that what it is they have to do to complete. For us, we like to do a case closure of their CPS case. So we dismiss that case when they're done. That's the ideal way of concluding. But there is this other component. You want to be able to take a look at this parent and say, this is an example of a person who has changed all their people, places, and things, and they are now a safe stable, sober parent making good decisions for themselves and their child. And I really don't think I'm going to see this parent again. There's that. And, you know, we know some of those parents who have 
had the light inside them turn on and you can see the transition, the transformation they had from when they started the program to now. And we love, love, love seeing those. But I'll say for me personally, if we have created even a slightly safer, more stable environment for a child, to me, that is successful. If we have another baby born during our program, but with no substances in their system, to me, that's huge. That's the life of a child coming into the world free of drugs. That is a success, whether or not that parent graduates my program and is that shining light. If we were able to accomplish that at some point, that is success to me. So I take it really on the granule level. If I have a parent who's able to put their children with the grandparents and they have a relapse thereafter, but those children were safe. They didn't have to be in an unsafe situation because that parent had enough foresight to say, I sense I'm not in a good place. Let me get my children to a safe place and then see what I can do for myself. Even if that parent has a relapse, that decision to do something safe for their children is a success to me. So I may look at it a little different than others, but I take all the successes that I can. I love the graduations and I love the shining lights, but I also am extraordinarily grateful when I know there's another little baby who has entered the world healthy and free of drugs despite anything else. So I guess that's kind of my version of it. I'm actually a little choked up. Um, I will just tell you that Coming from a mom who's adopted uh, two relatives who Mm -hmm. were born, unfortunately, with quite a bit of substances in their system. Um, And now both of those children are are over 18. And knowing their journey and their struggles and their continued struggles uh, due to the harm that that causes a baby, I will say I... I appreciate so much that that you recognize the importance of that. And it's one of those things that, you know, once you prevent that from happening, it doesn't, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, right? It's like, right. well, that, that's one of those things that never happened in this situation, but it's so important that it doesn't happen. Um, and I think every parent who has the opportunity to have that support system to learn and to grow and to do exactly that, to be able to give birth to a child and that child not to be born with those things in their system is so important for that baby, just so important. And I appreciate that that's that's a priority and that that's, that's a part of that success because you're right. I think when you are... Um, you know, when you have a substance abuse issue or you're, you know, addicted to drugs or addicted to alcohol, whatever it is, um, whatever that substance is, it's a lifelong journey. It's not right. one of those things where you're going to be like, okay, I went through this program and everything's fine now. You know, it's, this is a journey forever. And it's the fact that they're able to, even when they make a mistake in the future, come back and say, okay, I... I now have a support system where I have people that I can reach out to to say, hey, I I messed up or I need help, right? Like I need help to get back on track rather than, you know, uh, diving back into that because there's a lot of shame involved, you know, right. with people who are struggling with that. And and there's just, there's, there's, you know, it intertwines with mental health. There's just so much, but ultimately, especially in your programs, right? This affects the children. And 
children are going to benefit when their parent is doing better. They're going to benefit when their parent is sober. They're going to benefit when their parent does not have to be perfect, but that they can pick themselves back up and keep moving forward in the right direction. Um, And so giving them that strength and those tools to do that, I think are so vital and so important to have a successful program like this. So I love that you talked about that. I wish all the time, you know, that my baby's bio mom was able to have that type of support and and was able to utilize that type of support for the betterment of of my babies. So um, I say their babies are, I guess, other adults now. So I should stop (laughs) calling them that. (laughs) But, you know, and having met so many parents who also, you know, adopted children in similar situations, I would say that, you know, there's, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of children born positive in that life and the struggles that they have due to that are just, they're just sad. They're, it's just very sad. And you can't fix those things for children. And so right. the best way to fix that is to help the parent not give birth to a positive baby to begin with. Right. 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 And so that is the most upstream that you can go in that situation. And I am just so appreciative that, that your program focuses that upstream on that. So absolutely. Yeah. So I love that. Sorry. Uh, off tangent there for a second. I want to ask you a little bit about like your future plans. Like what does the future look like for your program? Is there anything in the works or anything you're focused on? And if not, future goals or anything, because I mean, frankly, you do a lot. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't have future goals, I am also just curious if there's any community programs that don't, are there any gaps or programs that don't exist that you really wish did exist that would, you know, make your program even better? Yeah, I mean, we're currently working with um, Santa Maria out of Houston on their ability to be, in Austin. And so that's kind of a venture that's continuing to unfold because I find it to be very important that we do have a treatment provider here in our community. We've invested so much in this program and it it was really heartbreaking when we lost Austin recovery and their family house. Um, But I'm hopeful that a new partnership with um, Santa Maria out of Houston could um, end in a very fruitful partnership with a Santa Maria in Austin. So that's one thing that we're working on. Also in our child welfare courts, we've been working through a pilot Um, We're basically reimagining the child welfare system uh, because there's been so much chaos in our child welfare system here in Texas over the last few years. And as we've been looking at that, we have also been focusing on our family drug treatment program, specifically looking at some of the things I talked about earlier with making sure that our practices and policies are equitable and that all of the families who are involved in child welfare have access to the program and can see success through the program. So one of the things that we've tried, again, it's, you know, innovation, trying something new. We kind of turned things on their head with how we brought families into the Family Treatment Court program um, because we were concerned about making sure certain populations were not being excluded because of some 
way in which the program was presented, we get our referrals through investigations with Child Protective Services. And so it takes a lot of training of investigators to say, hey, this is the kind of parents that fit in our program and making sure that they understand what you know is necessary to be in the program. That was very complicated, especially with a lot of turnover. So we came together as a team and with our partners in the child welfare system generally, we had a work group through this pilot kind of reimagining everything. And the question was, what if instead of trying to opt people into the program, we were needing to opt people out? So basically, anytime any case is filed in Travis County and substance abuse is one of the primary concerns, we automatically ask the question, should they be in the program? And let's consider that they are in the program until we find a reason why they wouldn't be a good fit. So instead of finding people who are the right fit for the program, we're wanting to bring everybody in until and unless we see that they would not be a good fit. And that's been a really interesting shift in how people are looking at our cases and which families should be given an opportunity for the Family Drug Treatment Court program. And I think I've seen an increase in the offer of parents coming into the program and having parents actually join. But I know that in this community, we're talking about it a lot more. So that's been one um, really interesting venture that we've been taking on. And I'll be interested in looking at our data, um, you know, kind of after we've had a full year of doing that and seeing if we notice any major shifts, transitions or improvements to uh, the families that have been giving access to our program. But the other big thing that we're doing through the program, and we're still in the midst of it, is we are sitting down and looking at the original intention of having a family treatment program in our community. Um, when I was a, an attorney and working with our previous judge in the seat who started the program, one of the selling points to our community about starting this specialty court was that by the nature of having this program, all of the cases involving parents with substance use disorders are going to improve. We're going to raise the bar for everybody. And we have done that through improved resources, um, our attorneys, our caseworkers, our CASAs, they all kind of have a, a stronger knowledge of substance use disorders, of recovery. Um, we have a more ability and willingness to allow parents with substance use disorder to have more access to the children, whether it's they have their children with them or if they're in a case where there's been a removal, that they have substantial and robust time parenting, uh, which wasn't always the case. A lot of times those parents were very limited to maybe one hour every other week supervised. And now we are trying to figure out the way that we get parents more time with their children, even if they are still battling their addiction and trying to find a way to get into recovery, so long as they're safe. And so it's changed the philosophy and the culture in our um, whole community about how we handle cases when parents have a substance use disorder. But now we're really trying to look at the logistics. How should we be working on cases differently in general, whether or not they're in our specialty court program, to make sure that we are implementing as many best practices that we can in working with a parent who has a substance use disorder. So that's the next big endeavor that we're taking on is how do you translate all the good things that you can from a specialty court and make that 
business as usual instead of the exception, especially when you don't have all of the funding and the resources that the specialty court has, what can we do regardless in the general dockets serving the same types of parents? So hopefully um, in about a year, I can give you some good information and some data about how we did that and what that transition looks like, because I think that's going to be a real game changer for our whole community if we are able to really make that kind of transition for cases, generally speaking, in our community that have parents with a substance use disorder. Yeah, I feel like this is just the beginning of me saying that it sounds like you have to come back in a year and do another <laughs> another interview um, where we can focus specifically on that. Um, I, I feel like I'm penciling it in right now. So, uh, you know, this has been really good information, and I hope um, the audience has enjoyed it as much as I have and learned as much as I have. I want to wrap up our show, and before we go, though, I always do this, but I always like to wrap up with three recommendations from our speakers, which is just, you know, recommendations from you that will benefit our listeners if they are, you know, already operating a similar program or if they're thinking about creating one. Can you... Uh, think of any useful tip that would be helpful for people to know? I mean, I would say kind of the motto that I go by is collaborate, innovate, and create. Uh, it takes a team to do it. Don't be afraid to really think outside the box, as cliche as that is, but don't put limitations on what you think may be possible and then really set your mind to doing it. If you're collaborating, you'll have the partners with you who will be on board and able and willing to support those innovative ideas and create something really, really amazing. So collaborate, innovate, and create would be my tip. What about a good resource, like trainings and yeah, I'll, I'll reiterate um, for the judges and for the people who want to know what the judges know, <laughs> the National Council of Juvenile Family Court Judges is a great resource. It's ncjfcj.org, as well as the Texas Supreme Court's Children's Commission. Great resources in Texas specific. That's texaschildrenscommission.gov. They're extraordinarily helpful. Both put on conferences annually um, and provide just wonderful information for free. Um, and especially the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges has a lot of data that they do, and they do state-by-state -state data as well, which could be really helpful. That does sound really helpful. I will have to put out a shout out real quick about Texas uh, Children's Commission, since I know that group and those people are pretty amazing, in my opinion. And I agree, there's actually a lot of resources on their website that they provide for free that I didn't know, you know, before a couple of years ago. And I was surprised to learn. And I think that that's, you know, especially if you're doing any work with children or families, I also highly recommend <laughs> you utilize all of that. So um, what about an important event that you would recommend to others? Oh, of course, the, our um, annual conference, the Texas Association of Specialty Courts Conference, I think we're going to rise Texas is how we're calling it. And that is um, coming up in March 26th through the 28th. We will be in Fort Worth. My team will be presenting. And so if you have some really specific um, questions for us, we will be there. And I know it is going to be a wonderful event that's going to really hit on a lot of different topics for so many different programs across the state. 
it will be great to network. And then you can collect more people to collaborate with so that you can then innovate and create something wonderful in your community. I concur with this recommendation. So Judge Martinez-Jones, I appreciate you being with me today to talk about all of this. And I appreciate you sharing all of your knowledge and your passion and your energy with our listeners. Thank you for having me. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much. As a reminder, see our show notes to contact us and find links to information discussed today. You can also find a link to register for our annual training conference on March 26th through 28th. Some food for thought until we meet again for another episode. How does a program that keeps parents safe and sober and keeps families together impact you or impact the people you know in your community? Be sure to like and subscribe to our show so you'll be notified when new episodes are available.